Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. Any of you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? Uh, some of you are probably saying yes, uh, and you don't know what it means because that's part of the imposter syndrome. Uh, the name might not be familiar to you, but I think the concept probably is. Imposter syndrome is this sort of haunting feeling that you can't really do what everyone expects you to be able to do, that the successes that you've experienced were a fluke or an accident, that uh, you're not really what people think you are, and that at any moment people are going to find out, or if they found out what you were really like, they would reject you because you obviously don't deserve the, the high regard that they have for you. Have you ever felt any of that, like, like you don't belong, like uh, maybe your friends or coworkers are going to discover you, you don't really know what you're doing? or you don't deserve the accomplishments or the recognition that you've received. Well, if so, you are in good company. Uh, an estimated 70% of people experience those imposter feelings at some time in their lives, according to the International Journal of Behavioral Science. Imposter syndrome affects people from all walks of life, and it, it works out in different ways. Uh, perfectionists have high expectations for themselves. And even if they meet 90% of their goals, they feel like failures. Any small mistake will make them question their competence or their accomplishments. Experts feel the need to have the answer to everything before starting a project, constantly looking for more certifications, more knowledge, 
Uh, I've fallen into this in starting projects around the house. You know, I'll want to research and more research and read up to make sure I really know what I'm doing, and then I spend two years getting ready to do the project. Uh, you, you might be hesitant to ask a question in, in class or at work if you don't already know the answer because you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing. The natural genius is used to skills coming easily, and when you have to put in effort, their brain often tells them it's not good enough. That I should be smarter. I should be doing better. Soloists have to accomplish tasks on their own, and, and if you have to ask for help, that's a sign of weakness or failure. You know, it's a common experience. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of experiencing it right now. Uh, Tom and I and a uh, hundred or so other pastors were gathered together at another church this week that was hosting a pastor's lunch with John Piper. Uh, John Piper started with a devotional going through some sections in the book of John and uh, listening to him, I'm thinking, wow, that is a guy who knows how to expound God's word. What am I doing up here in front of these people? How did I get up here? Surely they deserve someone better than me. There must be some mistake for me being up here. Maybe for you, you could, you experienced some of what I thought. You know, when I was a kid, it seemed like my parents knew how to do everything. They had all the answers. They had it all figured out. Uh, you know, I could rely on them to do anything. And, and then I got married and had kids and suddenly realized there's no instruction manual. And I, a lot of marriage and parenting, I think, is just sort of ad-libbing and trying to figure it out as you go along. And yet there's this sense of, oh my gosh, these kids are going to figure out I don't know what I'm actually doing. I felt that way in my career, too. I went to grad school, I earned a degree, I got a desk, I got a job description. Now what? <laughs> Everyone else seems to know what they're doing. There's a similar feeling, I think, sometimes... They can come into our Christian lives as well. We walk into church on Sunday and we look around and maybe it seems like everyone else seems to belong. Everyone else has it together. Christianity doesn't feel natural to us though. And maybe we feel that when we hear commands like, be holy as I am holy. Or live a life worthy of the gospel. It can feel so alien to us, so unnatural and so obvious that I don't measure up because so much of my default seems oriented in the other direction. And then failure and fatigue comes and, and we start to feel, this isn't me, I'm, I'm trying to be someone I'm not. And maybe God's going to figure that out one day. But natural as it seems to think this way, it, it's not true. It's not true, and that's part of what God is saying to us in this message today. The Bible is, of course, deeply realistic about our ongoing struggles against temptation and against sin and the continuing presence of sinful tendencies in our lives. But sin does not now define us. Failure does not now define us. One of the glorious implications, the glorious truths of the gospel is that we are now, who we are in Christ. That is our identity. That is our hope. That is our strength. And Jesus comes not to condemn us, not to give us more rules to follow, more goals to try to live up to. He doesn't give us more information to master, although there's certainly knowledge in following Christ. He, 
He's not coming primarily to give us the ability to develop more skills and expertise so that we have more self-confidence. God's goal in Christ, as we heard in this passage from Hebrews, is to bring many sons, or we could say many sons and daughters, to glory. He comes to bring us into his own kind of life, a life of glory, that is a life of weightiness, of significance, of reality, of of solidity. We've seen in this series in Hebrews how the Son, how Jesus is superior to angels, and, and then we heard this challenge, this exhortation in the beginning of chapter 2, then to pay more attention to the message of this greater one that he brings to us. And then Joey did a great job last week taking us through this section in Psalm 8 and pointing out how the Son for a little time was made lower than the angels. And now there's this rich, extended passage where the author is going to show us why the Son was made a little lower than the angels. And what that means for us. That the Son identifies with us in humanity in order to bring sons and daughters to glory with Him and in Him. He is the one who sanctifies us, who sets us apart for a new kind of life so that we would no longer have confidence in ourselves, no longer look for approval from others, but look to Jesus because Jesus is our confidence. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 18 today. If you uh, pull out one of those Black ESV Bibles in the little rack under the chair in front of you. That's on page 1188. We want to look at today how we have confidence as sons and daughters of God. How Jesus comes to give confidence to us as sons and daughters. The author starts in verse 10 saying, It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The one by whom and through whom all things exist, of course, is God the Father. And and this is an interesting comment because we don't normally talk about what is appropriate for God to do, right? I mean, if you hear people talking that way, and, and maybe sometimes we even do that in our own heads, it's not really adding to our knowledge of God. It's just telling us our preferences, about what we think God ought to be like. But here the writer is saying he's God. All that he does is appropriate for him because he is the Lord, but he does focus on this one thing that he has done that was fitting for him to do. To make Jesus, through his suffering, perfectly qualified to be the Savior of his people. God's rescue, God's work of us is not arbitrary, it's not random, it reflects who he is so that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are at the center of God's eternal purpose to bring many sons to glory. Not just men, of course, but men and women. But that expression of son, one, connects us back to the one son of God, but it's also a reflection of a culture in which sons, of course, were the ones who inherited the father's name, inherited the father's work. And carried on his mission and identity. Now, this is not an advertisement because I've never used them. But I know there's an Ellie Isley and Sons Plumbing in Indianapolis. Now, that says something about the company. 
the father established the business and the sons and the grandsons now carry on the name and the work. They've stepped into his mission. Now, I don't know if the sons have done a good job at it because, again, as I said, I've never used them. I just know the name. I don't know if they're good plumbers. I don't know if they're trustworthy. I'm getting a thumbs up, so all right. That's a recommendation, I guess. I don't know if their father would be proud of the way they're running the business, but, but what Jesus does is in line with what we know of the Father. Jesus reflects the Father's mission. It's Father and Son, salvation company, so to speak. And Jesus does that. He accomplishes God's mission in holiness and love to redeem people who would become sons and daughters, to identify with him and step into that mission with him. So Jesus is the founder of our salvation. And that word there, uh, the, the author, um, the, the, the founder can be trailblazer or guide. He's the one who leads the way to bring along all who follow with him. He moves ahead, leading the way, blazing the path for others to come behind him. So the author is saying then it, it was Fitting that Jesus would be made perfect through suffering, not, not because there was anything lacking or wrong in Jesus. He lived his life perfectly. He obeyed God completely. Perfection in Hebrews has especially to do with fulfilling what is appropriate. To be accomplished. It points to Jesus' obedience in fulfilling the mission that God had for him. So that he is now the perfect sacrifice for us. And, and so what we see here then down in verse 16 is he goes on to say, It's surely not angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. He didn't descend to the level of angels and become one of them. He descended to the level of mankind and, and became a Jew in fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham that through his offspring, the world would be blessed. So do you see what, what the author is saying here? Jesus, who created Abraham, who said, before Abraham was, I am, actually becomes an offspring of Abraham in order to make it possible for all to become children of Abraham by faith. That we are included in that promise. We become children of Abraham when we trust in Christ. So how does that give us confidence? We're going to look real quickly at, uh, at three sections here that, that this passage breaks into. That we have confidence as sons and daughters because Jesus identifies with us in our weakness. Jesus identifies with us in our weakness. He who makes men holy, who sanctifies them, and those who are sanctified are of one. Jesus shares in our nature. He's not remote, but he is one of us. Because we need a Savior who knows what it is to be like us and who accepts us where we are. And in verse 12, the author goes on to quote this passage from Psalm 22, which is, of course, this great messianic psalm that Jesus himself quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes these words of David, crying out in anguish for God's deliverance, and Jesus applies them to himself. 
saying, I am the true greater David who goes all the way down into ultimate suffering so that back in Psalm 22, as David anticipates, I will see God's deliverance. Now, Jesus is the one who sees the ultimate deliverance of God, who says, who goes on to say he has not despised the affliction of his afflicted one and not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Do you see now Jesus goes through death and comes out the other side and now declares his name to all, the name of the Father to all who will come along and be this new community that Jesus identifies with. The brothers now are are the community of God's people. And these next two quotes from our Isaiah 8, in the original context there is this crisis in the 8th century BC where Assyria, a powerful enemy, is threatening the Israelites with devastation. And Isaiah is sent out as a messenger to people who will not listen to him, and yet Isaiah and these two sons whom God gives to him and and these special names of promise that he give to him become a a physical sign that I'm still walking with God and, and I still have the children that God has entrusted to me and all who will listen. And now Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of that promise through Isaiah. Here I am and the children God has given me. Jesus is the one who trusts God all the way and now becomes the older brother Now, in a sense, pictures of a a parent and children of God. See, we need a connection between a holy God and a sinful humanity that could only be built by one who has experienced both deity and humanity. See, what we really long for is not an opportunity to prove how worthy we are. But we need someone greater than us who can lead us and teach us and rescue us. What we really long for is a place in the family that we don't earn or deserve. I'm the younger of three boys. My uh, next oldest brother is five and a half years older than me. And I always looked up to him growing up. And I still do. To me, as you know, a 10-year-old, he was athletic and handsome and, and also kind can you imagine being a 16-year-old and having a 10-year-old brother who wants to, and a gangly, awkward, nerdy one who wants to tag along with you? But he would always play football with me in the yard. He would invite me to hang out with his 16-year-old friends when I was 10. He was not ashamed of me. And he had plenty of reason to be, let me tell you. See, an honest look at ourselves shows us that Jesus would have any number of reasons to be ashamed of us. But Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He knows what it is to be human. He knows everything about us, everything, the things that you've never told anyone, the things you don't even want to admit to yourself. Jesus knows, and he's not ashamed. So if Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, oh, that God would help us understand it is not because we are that impressive. 
It is not because Jesus looks at us and says, boy, that's someone I could really use. Boy, I want him on my team. I want her. No. No, being called a brother or sister is pure grace. And that is good news because it gives us real dignity. It gives us unshakable security. It gives us fellowship in the family. Remember what the purpose is that God would bring many sons and daughters to glory by being united with them. Those who are being sanctified and he who sanctifies have one origin. Sanctification, to be set apart, is the beginning of God's glory revealed in us. And ultimate glory is sanctification completed. And because those who are sanctified to God through Jesus are sons and daughters, the Son is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We are weak. We are fallible. We are frail, we are foolish, we are flawed. And Jesus knows. You ever tell yourself, I'm I'm not really sure I belong? You don't. You don't. None of us do. And the good news is that Jesus qualifies us. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. Because Jesus identifies with us in our weakness. And he also identifies with us in our temptation. Did you see that in verse 18? Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, Of course, it's true that that word there, tempted, can also mean tried or tested. But the author here, I think, is focusing specifically on temptation. Because Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. He has perfect sympathy with us. He knows what it is to face temptation. It was real temptation. The sufferings that Jesus endured enable him to help us because throughout his earthly life, Jesus suffered. Do you believe that? Because sometimes I think maybe we get the idea that temptation wasn't that big of a deal for him. Like, you know, because Jesus was God, he was sort of above it all. I think it's the exact opposite. I think because Jesus is God in the flesh... Being who he is, temptation must have been far more difficult for him, far more distasteful to him than it is to us. He endured trials and temptations. The the ones that we all experience and endure, all that come with being human, but also unique temptations that came with his calling as the Messiah and the Savior. Time and again, temptation came from him to Find an easier way, a less costly path to fulfill his mission than suffering and death. But he resisted to the end. He was faithful to the end to accomplish the purpose for which he had come into the world. And that is good news for us. And and now the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these people who are not only enduring trials that are common to all people, But apparently the the temptation to turn and and 
turn their face turn their backs to Christ and, and find an easier path like Jesus was tempted to do. What a source of strength it would be to know, to be reminded that in the very presence of God is their champion, their intercessor, their high priest who is able to strengthen them in weakness because he has known even worse temptations than the ones we face. And he has withstood them. And so because of that, you see, in verse 17, he has become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. He is merciful. He knows that we are weak. He knows what it is to be tempted. And he does not condemn us for being tempted. And he is faithful to help us. He is faithful and able to help us every time we call to him. You will never call to Jesus for help and temptation and have him say, I'm not going to help you with that. Sorry, I've got something else to do. Or that's not important. Or you're in this on your own. He is faithful to provide a way out in the temptation. Interestingly, it's only in Hebrews that this term high priest is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And this is just the first example of its use that we'll expand on in later chapters. We're not going to spend a lot of time here talking about Jesus' role as priest. Except that, of course, that means he intercedes and he is a high priest in service to God. That he would make atonement for his people. For our failures. He takes away God's righteous wrath at our failure and he helps us in our weakness. He is able. He is able, not just willing, but he actually helps us as we call to him. Jesus went all the way for us. He, he not only was willing to suffer, but he did suffer so that now he is able to help and to save. Imposter syndrome. Boy, man, if those people knew how weak I am, I, I, I'm not sure I'm strong enough. I don't think I can do this. You're not. You're not strong enough in yourself. And, and that's a great freeing encouragement. But Jesus is. And he will help you. He is able to help you. He will help you. He is merciful and faithful to help you in temptation. Jesus sets us free from faithless worries and, and fears. Jesus, Jesus directs kings and the events of this world. And he also directs our days. Our pains, our longings, our burdens. He, he knows our temptations, our triggers, our regrets, our failures. But he is a merciful and faithful high priest who helps us and who then makes us freer and more peaceful and more joyful and more able to walk faithfully because he is the one who enables us. Jesus identifies with us in temptation and Jesus identifies with us in our death. We have confidence because Jesus identifies with us in death. Look back in the middle of this passage in verse 14. Since the children therefore share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In his book, The Art of Dying, Robert Neal lists aspects of this fear of death. We fear a loss of mastery because death is about loss of control. Our our bodies no longer work. We're no longer in control of our environment. There's an incredible vulnerability to dying that is frightening. We fear incompleteness and failure because there is a finality to death. It it is a... (laughs) final chapter. It is the book being closed and done. We're confronted with an end that that things left undone will not be completed. We fear a separation from our loved ones. And and we, we fear the unfamiliar. Because even though death is all around us, we will only see the inside of it once. Even for people who deny the reality of God, death is scary. And, and yet, for most of us, we don't walk around with this sort of ongoing terror of death. But the writer talks about this slavery to fear. And sometimes it, that can be sort of like a silent operating system running in the background that never really pops up in our consciousness. Maybe it's just operating at the level of denial. We don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. And so we ignore it or we try and find ways to distract ourselves from it or or numb ourselves to the reality to it. And that is a form of slavery too. Not necessarily to be constantly in, in panic or anxiety, but to just never deal with the reality of death. That is its own form of slavery. Because the fear goes underground and it enslaves us subconsciously. We, we live in a dream world of denial or escape. Can we try something? Would you be willing to say with me out loud together, I am going to die. I am going to die. How does that make you feel? It's not a pleasant thought. Startled, unconcerned, unsure, scared. Maybe it makes you want to change the channel to something else. See, we've not been delivered from death itself, but the good news is Christ comes to deliver us from the fear of death and the slavery that fear brings. You see, we don't know what death will be like, ultimately. We get pictures, we get hints, we get encouragements in God's word, but we know the one who has gone before us. We know the one who has experience in dealing with it. And if we keep our eyes fixed on him, we don't become slaves to fear. That sense of incompleteness and failure in Christ is overshadowed by the promise of an eternal future because we are made ultimately for glory and to live in the presence of God eternally. And one day, in Christ, we will stand before God and hear, well done. And we will enter into eternal life with Christ. And that fear of separation is is turned inside out too. Because in God's heavenly kingdom, we will enjoy relationships with all of those in Christ from whom we've been separated by death. 
Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those who have gone before. Our final destination is the presence of God in a new heavens and a new earth where all those who have known Christ will be reunited. And as followers of Christ, we've already surrendered control of our lives. I mean, that's what we're trying to move towards. That's the glory that God is growing us into. Death brings this fear of loss of control, but if we're in Christ, we've already surrendered control of our lives. We've already acknowledged, I'm not the master of my destiny and the captain of my fate. Control is an illusion anyway. Jesus is the one who's in control. And as I follow him and submit myself to him, I'm, in a sense, preparing myself for ultimate reality and eternity. So then death is just simply the last surrendering of the last bit of control to the one who is in control all along anyway. We give control to the one who cares for us deeply, who has the power to handle any situation, even our death, because he has gone through it and come out victorious. Death has no victory over us because Jesus has conquered it. Jesus has paid for it. The sting has been taken. And not just physical death, but all kinds of death. Job losses, divorce, wandering children, broken relationships. There are things that feel like death for us. That Jesus also has walked through and has mastery over. That Jesus frees us from the fear of. To live with confidence in his gracious control. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I'm not sure I can conquer this final enemy. You won't on your own and you can't. And that's why it's such good news. To know that we have confidence because Jesus has identified with us in death. Jesus is the one who delivers us. I probably can't do anything about my death. But the good news is that Jesus delivers me from the fear of that. Because I am his child. Jesus has come to bring Many children to glory, many sons and daughters. Yes, future glory, but also a present reflection. An increasing glory of God's life revealed in us. That is why Jesus has come. That is why Jesus for a little while was made lower than the angels. That he has come to bring us into the glory of the life that he has in himself that we would experience it completely one day, but even now begin to know that life, that glory, that wholeness. Our culture and our hearts are constantly lying to us about everything. Everything. What we must have, what we must look like, what we must be, what we must measure up to, what we must own. By the truth of his word and the grace of his gospel and the power of his spirit, God drowns out the nonsense and gives us confidence in the one he has sent to identify with us so that we could come into his life with him. Father, help us. Help us cut through the lingering voices of our guilt and our shame. 
Help us believe that all we need is Jesus and whatever you choose to give us. Father, we acknowledge and confess that sometimes the what-ifs and the if-onlys speak so loudly in our ears. Father, help us to hear these words again and again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Father, may your voice be more compelling to us than our fears. Fears about death and pain, fears about relationships, fears about failure, fears about the future. May your love for us, your purposes, your hope, your confidence for us in Christ drive out our fear and free us from our own faithless monologues. Father, help us to rest in your love, surrender to your sovereignty, rest on your faithfulness, and know the confidence of being sons and daughters of God because Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.